0: Well, it's very interesting that Al makes that point because it was exactly the uh, point of view of Calvin. And uh, he realized that uh, introducing congregational singing to a congregation that wasn't used to singing was very difficult. Uh, Introducing psalms to a congregation that didn't know any psalms was difficult. And introducing singing psalms to a congregation that had no musical accompaniment was even more difficult. And one of the ways Calvin uh, tried to master that problem was to teach... The kids have the kids taught at school how to sing the psalms, so they became kind of a choir at church, helping the whole rest of the congregation sing the psalms, and uh, um, got the psalms in the children's minds and helped the whole congregation. Well, now moving on to a nice safe topic, um, the sacraments. To... uh, To try to make a connection between our previous subject and our present subject, uh, let me suggest that when the church fails to give adequate um, place and have an adequate theology of the sacraments that our Lord instituted, the church inevitably creates sacraments to fill the void. Let me say that again. Where the church fails to have proper sacraments, the church then creates sacraments to fill the void. And I would suggest that to some extent music becomes a sacrament for some people because they have no proper sacramental theology. They have no proper uh, understanding of how God does come to us sacramentally. Uh, Let me uh, refer also to an earlier sacrament in the life of the church namely the altar call. Uh, I believe that in the history of American Christianity, the altar call became a sacrament. How do you meet God? How does God come to you to save you? How does the, how does the worship service culminate in Christ? The altar call. That's the place where you meet God. And um, we'll come back to how um, it's really the Lord's Supper that ought to fulfill that function in the liturgy. But uh, it seems to me that where the sacraments are not properly understood and used, uh, the church inevitably makes up sacraments uh, to help it along. Now, um, in this uh, lecture and after lunch, um, I want to be looking at the sacraments with you, uh, and we will spend um, some of our time on the theology of the sacraments, but I primarily want to focus on the liturgical use of the sacraments. That is, how do the sacraments properly function in our experience of worship? Now, they can't function properly in our experience of worship if we don't understand them properly. But uh, I don't want to just be talking about um, the theology of the sacraments, but I want to talk about how we're going to use them as well. And I think for many, many Protestants, The sacraments are a somewhat uncomfortable subject, uh, partly because um, uh, we are uh, unfamiliar with them and partly because uh, we remain very much concerned about the Roman Catholic excess in relation to the sacraments. Um, In our uh, books of historical theology, we even see uh, Christendom sort of divided up into the sacramentalists and the evangelicals. And so we we sort of worry that there is a great danger of of putting too much emphasis upon the sacraments. And that certainly has been a danger in the history of the church. And I don't want to underplay that danger uh, for a moment. But part of Calvin's theological method was regularly to say, uh, when one knows the truth, the truth is usually opposed by two errors, one on each side of the truth. And so while it is true uh, that uh, too much attention uh, can be given to the sacraments, uh, Calvin also said it is a danger that too little attention is given to the sacraments. And another way in which Calvin expressed this is he said we can turn the sacraments into magic so that they are just kind of an awesome act of power in which uh, strange and wonderful things automatically happen. Or we could turn them into a mirage where nothing happens. Nothing is real going on. It's only an appearance. And Calvin said we want to avoid both of those dangers. We neither want sacraments that are magic acts of power and lead us into a ritualism and a a sacramentalism that uh, is superstitious in character. But neither do we want to have sacraments that are, are a mirage and are empty of any real significance and meaning and reality. And I would suggest that the best theologian of the sacraments in the whole history of the Church was precisely John Calvin. Of course, I think that's true of most subjects, so it's not really very revolutionary on my part. Now, before we get to the individual sacraments, I think we ought to look for a moment at the question, is there a sacramental principle that informs the life and worship of the church. Sometimes that's put in a little different form and people say there is an incarnational principle that informs the life and experience of the church. And when people begin to talk about a sacramental principle or an incarnational principle, I get nervous. Because what that usually means is that they want to take the idea that God has chosen to work through the water of baptism and to work through the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper and to work through the body of our Lord Jesus Christ and to work through the voice of a preacher and extend that principle to say God works through physical um, uh, realities and therefore, and I, I have some good Lutheran friends, and I'm often accused of being a crypto-Lutheran. I like Lutheran so well. But I have some Lutheran friends who say, you know, it really is an abomination to have an empty cross in a church. You ought to have a crucifix in the church. If you don't have a crucifix in the church, you're denying the incarnational principle. Didn't Jesus have a body? Don't we know what a body looks like? We ought to have a crucifix so we testify that Jesus came in the flesh. Doesn't that sound um, convincing? Well, I hope not. Uh, now, I can be sympathetic for the point they're trying to make, but they make the point wrongly, in my judgment. Um, because, again, you see, we come back to the regulative principle God, in His Word, has not asked us to make an image of His Son to remind us of the incarnation. That would be an act of human invention. It would be a violation for us Reformed folk and even for folks that aren't Reformed of the Second Commandment. And so I, will, I want to say God has given us sacraments, but He has not given us a principle that allows us to use material things generally as ways of finding Him. He has only given us water to find Him in baptism and bread and wine to find Him in the Lord's Supper. Um, and I think this uh, bears on some uh, who uh, say, well, why don't we use incense in our worship? Uh, why, why not, as, a, as an extension of the Incarnational or the Sacramental Principle, use incense? It was used in the Old Testament. It's symbolic of the prayers of the people. Revelation 5 says that. Why can't we use it? Why can't we make our service more concrete? Why don't we avoid a spiritualistic tendency? Why don't we assert, as the Scriptures do, that physical reality is good and created by God and can be used to glorify God? You see, that's this extension of a sacramental or incarnational principle. And our Reformed reaction, I think, has to be, no, these things are not warranted in the New Covenant. And while God, seeing our need, has given us sacraments, He has not given us a sacramental principle. And um, the sacramental principle runs the risk of overemphasizing the sacraments. But then we want to be sure that in denying the sacramental principle, we don't deny the sacraments and then end up without the gracious provision of God. We need the sacraments. Uh, Calvin uh, repeatedly in his theology makes that point. And it is interesting how Calvin makes that point. He makes that point recurringly in terms of weakness. In and of ourselves, we are weak. And so God mercifully, graciously, kindly gives us the sacraments to help us in our weakness. Uh, If Calvin says that once, he must say it a hundred times in various places in his writing. And uh, the thought did creep into my head, now now, wait a minute, I just thought we don't need musical instruments because we're mature sons in the covenant of grace. Well Calvin would say yes, the, the, the new covenant has brought new strength, new power, new fulfillment to the people of God, there's no doubt about that, but uh, Calvin does not have an overly realized eschatology. Uh, he doesn't think we're perfect yet. He doesn't think we've arrived. Uh, He doesn't think that we are not at the same time that we are mature children of God at the same time still weak, sort of an already not yet kind of thing. Um, And I think we have to ask ourselves uh, right at the outset, is Calvin right on that point? Are we still weak and needy? Or are we strong enough that we don't need the provision of God? That may be a somewhat loaded way of asking the question. <laughs> uh, you, you see, uh, uh, we may ask ourselves, what, what exactly? Why why in the world do we really need uh, water and bread and wine? You know, we're, we have the Bible. We can read it. Isn't it a lot clearer? Uh, we have preachers we can listen to. Uh, we, we have a wonderful publishing industry of Christian Literature that, c- that can inform our mind, uh, we can gather and, and sing together. Why, why do we need this strange physical stuff? And uh, amongst uh, some, of the, um, some of the evangelicals, uh, uh, embracing a theology we tend to call more Baptist theology, they, they say, well, they say, in effect, well, you know, um, God just occasionally asks us to do some irrational things to show that we're obedient. Now, that's a slight overstatement of the case, but uh, it comes close to that. God, uh, God has asked us to do these things, and, uh, well, yeah, you know, we, as we do them, we think some pious thoughts, and by thinking those pious thoughts, uh, um, uh, we're helped. And so these these physical elements are reminders. They get us thinking, and to the extent that we're thinking, um, it, it's helpful. But, you know, we, the, the implication of that really is, well, we could sort of do this thinking without this stuff. And and Calvin would say that kind of thinking, you see, has failed to grasp both the depth of our need still and the real fullness of the gracious provision of God in the sacraments. And so Calvin says we really do need to think carefully about the sacraments so that as we experience them in the worship of God, we can really derive the benefit that God intends for us in the sacraments. And of course the first point that Calvin wanted to make is that God has given us two sacraments. This was a very controversial point in Calvin's day. The fourth Lateran council meeting in in 1215 uh, of the uh, medieval church had said there are seven sacraments. Uh, In addition to baptism and the Lord's Supper, there are other things. Um, uh, uh, Penance and marriage and ordination And uh, confirmation, I already said marriage, and extreme unction, the last rites. Anyway, there are five. Marriage, ordination, penance, confirmation, and extreme unction. Um, And uh, the idea was, you see, uh, isn't it great? God has given us a lot of sacraments. And when the Fourth Lateran Council defined seven sacraments, they were really reducing the number of things most people thought were sacramental. Some people thought making the sign of the cross was a sacrament. And the council said, no, that's a sacramental. It's not a sacrament. Um, uh, so there, but, but the idea was, you see, there is a sacramental principle in the world. God works through all sorts of physical things to bring uh, his blessing uh, to us. And Calvin said, no, you've got to look in the word and ask, what are the, uh, the signs that God himself in the mouth of his Son, has established as sacraments for us. And Calvin and all the Reformers uh, declare there are only two. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the dominical sacraments. Those are the sacraments instituted by our Lord. And uh, only they, the Reformers said, have a promise attached. And for Calvin and for Luther, the notion of promise in relation to the sacraments was crucial. Uh, Only the dominical sacraments have a promise attached uh, to them, uh, a promise of the Lord's blessing when they are understood and used aright. Now for Calvin, uh, he was insistent not only that there were only two sacraments, but that they were the church's sacraments. They were not private sacraments. And Calvin uh, carried that principle forward uh, with great consistency, I was going to say ruthless, but uh, I I don't want to besmirch Calvin's reputation in any way. Uh, Calvin had a, a, a passionate consistency on this point. The sacraments are part of the public ministry of the church. They are to be administered only in the public worship services of the church. Any other use is superstitious. And therefore, Calvin declared, baptism can take place only in the church and he was opposed to emergency baptism. That was a very common Roman Catholic practice. If a child was born and was in danger of dying, Rome said that child must be baptized, and any Christian may baptize the child. It's a very interesting violation of the general Roman Catholic principle that only priests can administer sacraments. But baptism was seen as so necessary and so fundamental that uh, uh, a nurse or a midwife, could baptize a sick child lest it die unbaptized, which would ensure that it would go to hell, according to medieval theology. Calvin said, that is superstition. The child, if born to Christian parents, is holy in the covenant because the child is born to Christian parents. And if the child dies without the sign of the covenant in baptism, the child is not lost. So that if a child is not healthy enough to be brought to the church, Calvin said, it ought not to be privately baptized. He said the same about communion. Communion should not be taken out of the church. Uh, Communion is a sacrament of the church and the people of God and should be administered only in the church. And uh, he wanted to stress that because he wanted to stress that that, that the, the sacrament did not belong to the priest privately. But the sacrament, and it, the the sacrament doesn't belong to the minister. The sacrament belongs to the church, and therefore the minister has no right to administer the sacraments except in the church and amongst the faithful. Was uh, was Calvin's uh, conviction, and uh, uh, he stressed that then with uh, with a passion. Um, now, when it comes to baptism as a sacrament. Uh, Calvin's practice then differed fundamentally from the medieval practice of baptism. The medieval practice of baptism uh, did not administer the sacrament in the course of an ordinary service of the church. In fact, in the Roman Catholic uh, Church, the baptismal font was not in the sanctuary. It was outside the sanctuary. And that was intended to say that baptism is the path into the church. Now, sometimes the, the baptistry was in a separate building. Uh, more, um, more frequently now in Roman Catholic churches, it's in the, well, I don't know what they call it, the vestibule, what we'd call the narthex, outside of the, um, uh, outside of the sanctuary, and baptism occurs there. And, and, the, uh, and the symbolism is that only through the water of baptism does one enter the sanctuary of God and that the child is not connected to God, the child is not a part of the church, the child does not belong in the church until it is baptized. Now Calvin turned that around and Calvin brought the the baptismal font into the church and said the child already belongs to God. The child is already a child of the covenant, and therefore, the child in the church and amongst the covenant people ought to be baptized. Because baptism does not establish a covenantal relationship between the child and God. Baptism marks that covenantal relationship. Baptism is the sign and seal of that covenantal relationship. The, the relationship exists before the baptism, and the baptism does not establish it, but marks it. Um, (coughs) The uh, Westminster Directory of Public Worship, uh, prepared at the same time that the Westminster Confession and Catechisms were uh, prepared, uh, uh, said that the minister at baptism was to speak some words of instruction to edify the people, uh, as they put it, according to their particular needs, and that one of the things the minister was encouraged to remind the people was that their children, and this is a quote, um, from the directory, that their children are Christians and federally holy before baptism, and therefore are they baptized? Their children are Christians and federally holy. Now, what do you think about that? Just a Roman Catholic holdover, right? Our children are just a bunch of little pagans that so we have to wait till they give up, and then they have to go forward at the altar call, right? Well, I hope not. I want more grumbling? No, no, they shouted. Um, you, you see, this this becomes a very fundamental question of the character of the church, and the character of the family, and the character of of children. Um, My old uh, colleague, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, some of you may have read some of his uh, commentaries, Uh, he once said, the trouble with Baptists is they have no proper theology of children. They don't understand children. They don't understand uh, God's relationship to children. Uh, But I think a lot of us don't either. Um, We uh, want correctly to uphold our Reformed doctrine of total depravity, original sin, and the necessity of regeneration, right? We all want to uphold that, don't we? And so we want to say, well, uh, even our children are born totally depraved. Or at least that I've noticed that about your children. Um, (laughs) we, We want to say our children are born totally depraved, and we recognize that our children must be regenerated by the Spirit of God, by a sovereign work of the Spirit of God in their hearts. And uh, we are sensitive to the, um, to the environment in which Reformed theology has developed, particularly in America, the environment that says, uh, now remember the danger of formalism. See, we're, we're almost right back where we began. You know, if you tell your children as they're growing up that they're Christians and that they're holy, how are they ever going to get converted? Isn't it really better to tell them they're sinners who need to make a decision for Christ? Isn't, isn't that the way to overcome formalism, you see? If you tell your children that they're Christians, aren't you just encouraging formalism? How do you know that they're, How do you know that they're Christians? You can't see their heart to see if they're regenerated, can you? Now, one of my growing convictions about Reformed theology, and I don't know if we have enough time to, uh, to go into any detail about it. I keep promising a question and answer um, session and keep talking and talking. Um, I'm, I, I am more and more convinced as the years go by that the genius of Reformed theology is the way in which it balances the issues related to regeneration with issues related to Covenant. And that the danger that reformed theology faces is that it can put too much stress on re- regeneration and undervalue the covenant. Or put too much stress upon the covenant and undervalue regeneration. And in a revivalist world that's worried about formalism, reformed theology, I think, tended to get skewed into thinking a great deal about regeneration and saying over and over again, our children are not automatically regenerated. We have to worry about the spiritual state of our children. We have to get them converted. Now, let me be clear. Our children need to be regenerated. And there is some legitimate worry that Christian parents should have, uh, uh, legitimate concern that Christian parents should have about their children. And many Christian parents have the experience of children growing up, uh, living in disobedience to the Lord, and needing to be converted. So I don't want to minimize uh, those concerns. They, they need to be maintained. But I think they go too far when we conclude, um, because we're not sure that our children are regenerated, we must treat them as unregenerates and strangers to the covenants of grace, until we're sure they are regenerated. And I've known uh, some very consistent Baptists, uh, thankfully not many of them, who won't let their children pray, who won't let their children sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, and not because they're exclusive psalm singers, but um, (laughs) because they don't want the children involved in formalistic exercises that may not truly reflect the state of their heart. Now, the danger on the other side has sometimes been manifested in a hyper covenantalism, occasionally occurring amongst the Dutch, (laughs) but amongst Presbyterians too, where parents just blithely assume that because they're their children, they'll be fine. They'll grow up to be good Christians. And if they run amok as teenagers, well, after all, boys will be boys. That's a very dangerous attitude. That's a kind of hyper-covenantalism that acts as if it's an absolute guaranteed deal that our children will grow up to be Christians. Abraham's children didn't all grow up to be Christians. It's not guaranteed. But then how are we to think about children? How are we to relate to children? And there, I think, baptism stands at the very heart and center of what the Lord is saying to us and, and how we ought to think. And why, in our weakness and in our need, baptism is so valuable, so useful, so crucial for us in understanding of the Lord's purpose and the Lord's will for us and for our children. Because baptism says, I will be a God to you and to your children. You are in covenant with me. I have made promises to you. And the promise I make to you is that as you are my children, I will be your God. And you don't need to have any doubts about that. Now one of my favorite illustrations of that is um, is drawn from Martin Luther, and this is why I'm accused of being a crypto-Lutheran. But you can find very parallel things in Calvin. Martin Luther was once asked by someone greatly troubled in soul, greatly agonized and introspective, someone troubled who said, you know, Luther, I don't know whether I'm a Christian or not. I just don't know whether I'm a Christian or not. Uh, On the one hand, I listen to the Bible, and, and I believe what the Bible says is true. I hear about how Jesus died for sinners and I know I'm a sinner. I I really believe that the Savior is the only way to God. But I look at my own life and there's so much of sin in my life. There's so much indifference to God and His ways. There's so much that, that, that seems to testify to so little work of the Holy Spirit. I look at my faith and it seems so defective. It seems so weak. It seems so occasional. And the more I look at my life, the less sure I am that I'm really connected to Jesus. Now those kinds of pastoral problems used to be relatively frequent. Uh, They don't seem so frequent anymore. Um, The the modern attitude is, uh, well of course I'm I'm saved, God's lucky to have me. (laughs) Now most people don't express it quite that way, but there's a lot of that going around. Now look around, God. A lot of people pay no attention to you at all. You should be very pleased that I give you some of my time. Well, of course God will accept me. Uh, I, I, I always think of uh, R.C. Sproul once uh, 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 saying to his son, when his son was about 10 or 12, uh, using the, uh, the Kennedy evangelistic method and saying to his son, now if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, uh, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? His son thought a minute and he said, well, I'd say to God, I'm dead. (laughs) And Sproul said, that is the prevailing theology of our time. (laughs) Justification by death. Uh, All you have to do to get to heaven is to die. Uh, uh, God's a nice guy and I'm a nice guy and of course I'll be welcome into heaven. Uh, but, but there are people who wrestle with tender consciences on this question, how can God love a sinner like me? How can I have any assurance that I'm connected to God? And, and you might ask yourself, how would you answer that question? What do, what do you say to someone in that kind of state? You might say, uh, try harder. Do better. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. There's all sorts of counsel like that to be derived from Job's uh, comforters. (laughs) Luther had a very different answer. When When the fellow said, how do I know I'm a Christian? Luther said, you've been baptized. Now I suspect for an awful lot of us, we would never think to appeal to baptism in that way. and In fact, we might get nervous Well, now, what's what's Luther saying there? Is he saying that just because you've had some water sprinkled on you, you're automatically a Christian? You're guaranteed that you're a Christian? Isn't that magic at work again, the very thing we're trying to avoid in the Reformation? No, that's not what Luther meant. What Luther meant is, when you're struggling with the question, am I a Christian? You're struggling with the question, does God's promise count for me? And Luther said, even when the word is preached, you may be left in some question as to whether the promise preached actually connects with you individually. The promise is for a lot of other people, but is it really for me? I'm still left with that question. And Luther says, in the water of baptism, the promise of God touches you individually. And God has made a promise to you that as you rest in him, Christ has borne all your sins. Oh, well now, but you're still saying as you rest in him. Yeah, Luther uh, never denies that we, uh, we share in the benefit of the sacrament only by faith. But what he's saying is, stop looking at yourself. Stop doing this moral inventory. And Calvin says exactly the same thing over and over again in his writings. The more you look at yourself, the more uncertain you will become of your relationship with God, especially if you have a sensitive, regenerated conscience. Because a sensitive, regenerated conscience becomes more and more aware of the continuing sin in the life. Becomes more and more aware of the weakness of faith. And in our weakness, God in mercy has provided sacraments for his people. Sacraments that carry his promise to us immediately, directly sacraments that we can touch and lay hands on to be assured that his promise is true and will not fail. And so it's a glorious answer. You've been baptized. It's a glorious promise. And again, the Westminster Directory very much in the spirit of Luther, says that uh, when a baptism is performed, the minister is to speak to all the people and admonish all that are present to look back to their baptism. That's part of the way baptism functions liturgically. Every time we see a baptism, we should think about our own baptism. As we hear the the words... Now, that surround the baptism as applied to the child or to the adult coming to be baptized, we should remember those words were spoken to us. Even if we can't literally remember them because we were infants when we were baptized, we are renewed in that baptismal covenant by remembering that what is happening visibly before us to another happened once to us. To look back to their baptism to repent of their sins against their covenant with God. Uh, Baptism should remind us uh, that uh, repentance is an ongoing obligation of the children of God. And when we see the promise of God, when we see the covenant of God displayed there in the water of baptism, it should lead us to remember we have not been the faithful covenant children that we ought to have been and to lead us uh, to repentance before God. So baptism should, should admonish all of us to repent of their sins, our sins against our covenant with God, and to stir up our faith. Uh, that's uh, the great dynamics of Reformed uh, experience, repentance and faith. Stir up repentance as we recognize our sin, stir up our faith as we rest in Christ and his finished work. And then the, the wonderful phrase, um, to improve and make right use of our baptism. How do you improve your baptism? It's an interesting phrase. To improve our baptism. Well, I think it's, they define it right there. To improve and make right use of our baptism. What is the right use of our baptism? To remember that we are baptized people. That we are set apart from the world by the waters of baptism. That in the waters of baptism, Jesus Christ has made a promise to wash away our sins. And I think it is it is a tragedy of our spirituality that I think for most of us, and I certainly include myself in this, we hardly ever think of our of baptism, of our baptism. Going to church maybe and seeing the bulletin that someone's going to be baptized, and you think, oh, service is going to be a little longer today. <laughs> Should have turned the oven down a little bit. but you know when you read the New Testament Paul over and over again makes appeal to baptism as, as a present reality in the Christian life and experience I think that's true in Romans 6 for example when, when Paul wants Christians to mortify sin in their, uh, in their experience he reminds them that they are a baptized people and that baptism speaks to them about sin being washed away but 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 we can get nervous about that, even, even so uh, noted a, a Reformed theologian as, as Martin Lloyd Jones just didn't want to think that, that all that stress upon baptism in Romans 6 could be water baptism, it must be spirit baptism, because we don't want to become formalists. But I, I really think he misses the point there. You see, uh, have you been spirit baptized? Well, this, you know, this is a confident group. <laughs> but it, it, it is a little harder to be sure that you're spirit baptized than to be sure that you're water baptized. You see, water baptism, which certainly testifies to spirit baptism, and we need spirit baptism. Every Christian is spirit baptized. I, I, I believe all those things. But you see, again, if you just begin introspectively to ask, have I really been spirit baptized? You'd get right back in the, in the morbid mess. And the water baptism, you see, is, is the way out. It is the way to the objective statement of the glories of God's grace and mercy to his people. And um, Luther expresses that powerfully. Luther always expresses things pretty powerfully. Um I, I, I read uh, some time ago now Luther's large catechism, in which he has pages on baptism, and I kept waiting for that point at which I would see that he'd gone over the edge, you know, gone too far, and uh, uh, was amazed to find out I agreed with every word of what he said in his uh, statements on baptism in his large catechism, which made me worry. So I went back and read it again, and no, I really think uh, he's reformed. Um, <laughs> but but listen. Um, Listen to what he says. Um, Thus faith clings to the water and believes that in baptism is pure salvation and life. Now are you comfortable saying that? Faith clings to the water. Well now he does go on. I didn't read the whole sentence. Not... In the water, as we have said plainly enough, but in the word and institution of God incorporated therein, and the name of God which inheres in it. You see what Luther is saying, it's not water as some magical thing that saves us, but it's water that bears the promise of God. It's water connected to the word and promise of God. But, but God's institution, and I think this is what Calvin is saying as well, God's institution is to link the promise with the water so that if our confidence in the promise begins to waver, we can look to the water which we have seen, which we have uh, touched, and can be renewed in the promise. So we mustn't be wiser than God. One of my favorite phrases from the Heidelberg Catechism. We must not be wiser than God. And when God says we need water to bear His promise to encourage us and to assure us, we need it. And therefore, faith does cling to the water. Not water as bare water, but water as sacrament which bears the promise of God and comes to each one of us individually, touches each one of us directly. Luther says, Therefore, we always teach that the sacraments and all external things which God has ordained and instituted should not be regarded according to the coarse external mask as we regard the nut of the shell, but as the word of God is included therein. It's the word in the water. It's the promise with the water. And Luther says, faith alone makes the person worthy to receive profitably the saving divine water. Yeah, Luther can call the water saving, can call the water divine because it bears the saving divine promise. But it profits us only when we receive it by faith. Because these blessings are here promised and presented in the words, in and with the water, they cannot be received except we believe it with the heart. Although it is in itself baptism, although baptism is in itself a transcendent divine treasure, it is of no avail without faith. And I think it's helpful to keep comparing the sacraments with the preached word. Is Christ present in the preached word? You bet. Is Christ present in the sacrament? Yeah. But Christ does not bless in the preached word or in the sacrament unless he's embraced by faith. He's present, but he doesn't save except as he is received in faith. But to protect the importance of faith, we do not have to deny His presence, which is what many people in opposition to formalism want to do. They say, no, we don't want to find Christ in the water. We want to find Him just by faith. But Luther and Calvin's point is the water bears Christ to us. The water makes Christ present for us because the water contains and visibly uh, declares the promise of God. Calvin loves the phrase of Augustine that the sacraments are visible words. They're not a different word than what we hear preached or what we read in the Bible. They don't bring a different Christ. They bring the same Christ and his promise in a different way, a way that helps us in our weakness. And it's at this point that Reformed theology says yeah, we do need to see the promise of God as well as hear it. We are weak. Our ears are not enough for us. We need our eyes engaged in religion as well. But that doesn't mean we should make statues or paint icons or have crucifixes. It means we ought to accept the institution of God, which is water in baptism and bread and wine in the supper. And part of the glory of the encouragement of baptism is that just like regeneration... And just like justification, it is once for all. It testifies to the fact that there is a beginning of the Christian life. It testifies to the fact that what God once begins will never fail. And that's why, interestingly, even when the theology of baptism was not very good in the church, there was a sense that baptism was, in a sense, the crucial sacrament. It's the sacrament that testifies to to the definitive work that God has done in saving his people. And Luther, I think, um, grasps that, communicates that, when he says to the worried sinner, you have been baptized. Look back to your baptism." improve your baptism. Uh, Calvin puts it in, uh, in yet other terms that are, are powerful and uh, uh, challenging and, and effective. He can speak very strongly. He says uh, in the Institutes, for example, if we consider the peculiar character of baptism, surely it is an entrance and a sort of initiation into the church through which we are numbered among God's people. It is a sign of our spiritual regeneration through which we are reborn as the children of God. Does, does baptism relate to regeneration? Sure it does. When we look in faith to our baptism, we are sure we are regenerate. Now there was a Dutch synod in 1906, I think, the synod The question posed to it, does regeneration, how exactly does regeneration relate to water baptism? And it gave one of the great Reformed answers in the whole history of synods. It said regeneration occurs before, during, or after baptism. (laughs) And they were absolutely right. But you see, when I worry about my regeneration in faith, then baptism tells me I am regenerated. As William Perkins, the great English Puritan divine, said, a desire for grace is evidence of grace. It's by and large regenerate people who worry about whether they're regenerate or not. And and baptism stands there as the great pledge, the great encouragement. Calvin says, baptism is a sure testimony to us that we are united to Christ himself, that we become sharers in all his blessings. For he dedicated and sanctified baptism in his own body in order that he might have it in common with us as the firmest bond of the union and fellowship which he has deigned to form with us. Hence Paul proves that we are children of God from the fact that we put on Christ in baptism. You see, we need a higher baptismal consciousness. We need baptism to function as part of our daily Christian experience so that in times of frustration with our sinfulness and frustration with our weakness, we turn to God's promise as it is so wonderfully contained in baptism. Now Calvin, like Luther, knew that there were ways of, um, of, of misusing uh, baptism, and he, he speaks to that. He, he says uh, in his commentary on Galatians, I reply that it is customary for Paul to speak of sacraments in a twofold way. When he is dealing with hypocrites who boast in the bare sign, you know, people who live in an utterly godless way and then say, Oh, I'm really safe, I've been baptized, then, Calvin says, Paul proclaims the emptiness and worthlessness of the outward sign and strongly attacks their foolish. Confidence. Why? Because he considers not the ordinance of God, but the corruption of the ungodly. You see, the problem that formalists have is not that the forms of God aren't good, but that they haven't used them well. Calvin goes on, when, however, Paul addresses believers who use the sign properly, then he connects them with the truth which they figure. He connects the sign of the sacrament with its reality. Thus, in agreement with a divine appointment, the truth becomes joined to the sign. So can we we talk about baptism as the sacrament of regeneration? Peter does in his epistle, so we better figure out some way to do it. Peter says, baptism now saves you. What What does Peter mean when he says that? He means exactly what Calvin and Luther have been trying to say. When I think about salvation, baptism presently bears to my heart the promise of God that I am saved. Baptism saves me as I look to it by faith. Not because it's an inherent magical power, but because it is the bearer of God's promise, which comes with great promise assurance and hope and help for me. And therefore Calvin can talk about baptism as a daily garment that we should put on. Luther talks about baptism in terms of a daily conversion. He uses conversion in the old sense of putting to death the old man, bringing to life the new man. That has to go on every day. And baptism speaks about that conversion every day. And that baptismal truth needs to be communicated to our children from their earliest years. Calvin writes, The reason why Satan does his utmost to deprive our children of the ceremony of baptism... Don't read this to your Baptist friends right off. Um, (laughs) The reason why Satan does his utmost to deprive our children of the ceremony of baptism is that he may efface from our gaze this attestation that the Lord has ordained for confirming to us the blessings which he desires them to enjoy, and that thus at the same time we may forget little by little the promise which he has given for them. From this there must follow not only ingratitude and contempt for God's mercy towards us, but failure to instruct our children in the fear and discipline of His law and in the knowledge of His gospel. For it is no small incentive to us to nurture them in true piety and obedience to God when we understand that from their birth the Lord has received them amongst His people and as members of His church. Therefore let us not turn our backs on the great kindness of our God, but boldly present our children to Him. Now you notice uh, Calvin is not saying uh, get the kids baptized then you don't have to worry a thing about them ever again. You don't have to do anything for their spiritual well-being again. No, he says the very fact that God has so graciously included our children in His covenant and given them the sign of the covenant obligates us as parents to work hard at instructing them to become what the sacrament is said there to be. And so the sacrament must never in, encourage presumption on our part, or indifference on our part, or irresponsibility on our part. We can never say, oh, I don't have to worry about my children. They've been baptized. What we have to say is I need my children to see how privileged they are that they've been baptized and that how from the youngest years they need to live out the reality of their baptism. And see, I think this has very profound implications for child rearing We don't want to say to our children, you know, I don't really think you're a Christian and you better get converted. What if I were to say to you, I don't think you're a Christian, you better get converted. Barbara, I don't think you're a Christian, you better get converted. Now, what are you supposed to do since you are already a Christian and converted? You see, you're you're in a hopeless situation you're already a Christian and converted, and I keep telling you, you've got to get converted, you've got to get converted. Where are you supposed to go? And sometimes I think uh, that burden is laid on our children. What, What should we then say to our children? We have to say to our children, you have to every day own the covenant. Your baptism is a daily garment that has to be put on. Every day you have to live out of repentance and faith. Of course, we, we, we soon realize that what we say to our children, that is what we have to say to ourselves, isn't it? Every day we need the garment of baptism to be put on anew. Every day we need faith and repentance anew. Not, not that we're making a whole new beginning with God, but, but we are in process as our children are in process. Now, it is a tragedy that some children who have been blessed with good Christian training and have been baptized grow up and reject the covenant. And when they reject the covenant, then we have to say to them, you have not improved your baptism, but you've rejected your baptism. And therefore, you do need to be converted. You have placed yourself outside of the covenant. And yet, we can also say to them, but God in his baptism still calls to you. God in his baptism says, sinner, come home. Our children, even in rebellion, are favored over against the world because that covenant promise has touched them in a way it hasn't touched the world and still calls to them in a deeper way that even the sinners of the world are called. It doesn't guarantee that they'll hear that call. But it stands still as a comfort to us as parents that the covenant calls and calls and calls and stands as a declaration of a gracious God who will forgive everyone who turns to him no matter how great the sin or how long the rebellion and in prayer then we have to appeal to God to fulfill the sign of the covenant in our children but you see I think it makes all the difference in the world in how we raise them how we understand their relationship to God and to the church. When they make profession of faith, they are not becoming members of the church, but they are fulfilling their membership in the church that they already enjoy. They are members of the church. They do belong to Christ. So let's dedicate ourselves to improving our baptism. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we are so thankful that you are so good and gracious and kind that in our weakness you have provided what we need. And that you have proclaimed your promises not only in the spoken and written word, but you have proclaimed your promise in the signs of your sacraments. And we do thank you that we are a baptized people, a set-apart people, a people marked with the promises of Christ's renewing grace. And we pray that day by day we may treasure that baptism and allow it to do its good work of bringing the promise of God anew and afresh to us that we are your people. And we would pray now especially for children of the covenant who walk in disobedience, who in spite of your great mercy and kindness in the sacrament of baptism have turned their back upon you. And we plead, O Lord, that you would yet renew in them an understanding of your covenant and a true faith and repentance. That their baptism might indeed plead with them as indeed the prayers of your people plead and the promises of the church plead. And we pray that you would give us the joy of seeing children who have rebelled against you to turn back and to be renewed in that covenant. We praise and thank you that you are such a merciful God and that you have so often heard the prayers of your people. And we pray that you would give uh, comfort and strength to those who will not see the conversion of their children, that we might find our whole hope in you and be able to rest in your sovereign purpose with the assurance that you do all things well. Hear us then and renew us in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.